Good evening. While you're turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I want to give a couple of, of quick uh, points of way of introduction. Uh, number one is um, I would like you guys to thank my wife who graciously gives up her sanity time so that I can uh, prepare for these, uh, these talks. Um, and that's a big sacrifice for her, so make sure you thank her for that. Um, and the other disclaimer is uh, we're going to be flying through the scripture tonight from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And a lot of the points I'll be talking about um, in their own right deserve a sermon. Um, so don't be upset that we're not going as deep as, uh, as we could and should on all of these points. Um, but this is really just by way of introduction. So turn with me again in Genesis 3. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for, um, God, the depth and the richness that is contained in this verse God, and I pray that as we look at it, uh, you would open our eyes and open our hearts. In your son's name we pray, amen. So I want to pull three threads out of this verse tonight, um, and we're just going to kind of pull at them and, and see where they take us, and, and those three threads are the thread of suffering, the thread of seed, and the threat of sacrifice. So we're going to look at those three things. Um, but before we do that, um, I want to get a little context uh, so we know where we're at and get our bearings. Okay, so in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? So God speaks the world into existence. Okay, we remember that. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Okay, so, so by his, his power, he creates the whole world into existence. And the pinnacle of his creation is on the sixth day, he creates mankind after his image. And then we get into the, the story of how he creates this beautiful garden, right? It's perfect. All of these uh, beautiful trees, okay, everything that they could want, um, their, their provision, has been provided for in God's creation, and he places them in the garden. And we remember that he says, have anything that you want, but there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. Okay, don't take that fruit, because if you do, you will die. So he places them there. He gives them everything um, in his grace, that they are to have, and that one prohibition. And then we get to, uh, to the garden scene where Eve and Adam are under the tree, and the serpent comes, right? And he, he starts to cast doubt on God's word. And so he says to the woman, did God really say, don't eat of that tree? You know what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to keep something good from you because he has this 
inferiority complex. He's afraid if you take that fruit and you eat it, you're going to be like him. And Eve starts thinking, well, that seems pretty, pretty cool. And she sees the fruit and she sees that it looks really good and it's desirable for gaining knowledge. And, and so she reaches out and she takes a bite and she hands it to her husband who is with her, okay? So he wasn't off somewhere. He was right next to her. He saw the whole thing, right? And he, and he eats. And then it says, immediately the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, okay? And they felt this thing that they had never felt before, this guilt and shame and this, this sense of nakedness, right? And this fear that crept in. And so they hide, okay? They hear God coming and they hide. And God comes and he confronts them, right? He confronts them in this moment. And he says, Adam, did you eat from the tree I told you not to? And what does he do immediately? He points his finger, right? And he says, listen, it's really your fault. I was, you know, living in my man cave and it was great. And then you brought this woman to me, you know, and she, she gave it to me, I ate. Right? So God, in his grace, instead of crushing him right there, turns to the woman, right? And, and he says, woman, you know, what happened? And she, same thing, right? It's in our DNA. Points the finger. Well, it's, it, you know, the serpent, right? The serpent deceived me. And so he, he turns to the serpent. And so that's where our context is, right? Right here. He turns to the serpent and he starts talking to the serpent. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the first thread that we want to pull on here is the thread of suffering. And I get that, that word from, uh, from the word enmity in our text here. So, uh, the, the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines enmity like this. Enmity and its synonyms, hostility and animosity, all indicate deep-seated discontent or ill will. Enmity, which derives from an Anglo-French word meaning enemy, suggests true hatred, either overt or concealed. Hostility implies strong, open enmity that shows itself in attacks or aggression. Animosity carries the sense of anger or vindictiveness, and sometimes the desire to destroy what one hates. So here we see enmity implies an enemy, and an enemy implies war, and war Okay, in war, there is inevitably suffering. So that's the first thread, the thread of suffering. And I want to look at three sources to this suffering. The first is going to fall under the heading of providence. And I get that because I think the first source of suffering spills over to us from Satan's war with God. Okay, and so if we look at the text, we see God saying, 
I will put enmity. So God is sovereignly ordaining this enmity, and we need to understand that. Okay? And, and through his providence, he directs this enmity and this suffering for his glory. Okay? So how does this work out? I think we see a really good example for this in the story of Job. Right? So we remember back to Job chapter 1, and there's this scene in heaven right, that is hidden from, from Job's eyes. But we see Satan okay, coming before God, and we see God pointing out Job to Satan, and we see behind the scenes, right, there's this, this war that's going on between God and Satan in, in this, from Job's perspective, it, it's hidden, right? And that's where we see it's, it's this providential suffering, right? And God is directing this, and all throughout Job's life, we see his suffering, and we don't understand it, um, he doesn't understand it, and it's, uh, it's something that he has to work through. And we see in the whole book him working and wrestling with this providential suffering. Okay, but we want to see that, that this is, is the source of that. All the way back in Genesis, we understand this enmity. So the second source of this suffering, um, I'm going to put under the heading of possession and oppression. And I know that's not a very good title, so as you guys think about it, someone, think of a better term afterwards, come up and give that to me so I can refine that. But possession and oppression, and, and that I want to see the source of that suffering comes from Satan's war with the creature who bears God's image, right? So the first war between Satan and God, he understands that he cannot win, right? He gets that. And so the easiest, the next best thing for him, because he can't destroy God, is to pour out his enmity on the creature that bears the image of God, okay? So his, his war with mankind. And that's where we see, if we look at our text in Genesis 3, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Okay, so here we see the serpent, or Satan, and the woman. Okay, who is representative there of, of mankind. And I want to look at two groups in that. Okay, because we understand that we're in a war. But here's the thing. Maybe you don't believe any of this stuff. Maybe you think, well, that's fine, but I'm not a Christian, so I don't have an issue with Satan. There's no war here that's being waged. And I want you to understand that this war and this enmity is not as a result of a profession of faith that one makes, but it's the very fact that we as human beings bear the image of God. Okay, so there is no, no choice in this war. Pacifism is not an option, right? From the day that you are born, we are born into a war, and we have an enemy whose sole purpose it is to destroy us as human beings, believer, atheist, doesn't matter, right? Because we bear the image of God. Okay, so that's the possession side of that. The second one, oppression. We also want to understand that, that there's a special um, ferocity 
with which Satan attacks and opposes those who are believers, right? So there's a deeper level to that suffering that we as believers face. And we see that and we understand that, that, that Satan's desire is to destroy and devour us. So I want to move on now to the third source of suffering. And that one is going to be labeled under uh, the heading of persecution. So the, the, the third source stems from the war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. So if we look in 315 again, we're going to see that enmity is between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So we understand that there are, are two, really two, two groups, and we've already looked at those briefly. Um, and, and, and generally, we'll call that believer and unbeliever. So I want to look at this third source of suffering, persecution. And I think Jesus, um, in John 8, really helps bring this thread to life, right? He says this in John 8, 44. He says this to the Pharisees that are opposing him, right? You are of your father, the devil, and you, your will is to do your father's desire. So Jesus brings this out, that the Pharisees, okay, their father was the devil, okay? They were the offspring, as it were, like we see here, of the serpent, okay? So he brings that to light. And then, later on in John, in chapter 15, he says this to his disciples, okay? Or the offspring of, of the woman, right? In, in a loose sense. John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Okay, so Jesus is helping the disciples to understand that because you are aligning yourself with me, okay, and, and from our text, the seed of the woman, right, there's this persecution that is going to come to you, this suffering that's going to come to you because you are aligning yourself with me. And so those are the three sources of, of suffering that I see here in this text. And that's the first thread. And we want to look back over Scripture, right? And when we see suffering in Scripture, we saw that in Job, right? We run up, uh, up against it all the time. It's a constant theme. It's a thread that's woven through from Genesis to Revelation. And we want to understand when we see that theme and that thread, we understand here the source back in Genesis 3. It's the fall. This is where that suffering comes from. So the implications for that. Number one, we have an enemy, okay, who is hell-bent on our destruction. That should wake us up, right? It should cause us to live with a sense of sobriety, right? This is a serious thing, okay? We don't often think about that, and I think that we need to think about that and remember that more, that there's more that's going on, like Job, okay? Behind the scenes, there's so much that we don't see. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us, okay? So I think the other implication is that when we run up against suffering, in our own life, we need to remember the source 
of that suffering, that we suffer because we live in a broken and fallen world. And here we see God sovereignly ordaining that enmity, that struggle, that suffering that we experience, and we know it's because we've messed up this world, right? There are consequences to our sin, and because there's consequences to our sin, we suffer. But there's hope, and we'll get to that. So the second thread that I want to tug on is the thread of seed. Okay, and I get that from the word offspring. So back to our verse in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see here, there's this, this promise of one that would come. There's an offspring. Okay, In this curse to the serpent, there's also hope given to mankind, that there is going to be a seed of the woman. Okay, And so immediately in this curse, there's hope. Okay, In that suffering, there's hope. And we see that right away. Flip over to verse or chapter four. We see this immediately, right? In verse in chapter four. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Okay, so we, we can't help but notice the sense of optimism and the sense of hope that Eve is conveying in this, right? This she doesn't have the benefit that we have of of thousands of years of history of God's delay. She has this promise from him that there will be a seed of the woman, okay, that there will be this offspring, and she has Cain, and she thinks, this is it, okay? She's filled with hope. And it doesn't take very long for her hopes to be crushed while Cain crushes his brother Abel in murder. And he reveals that he is much more uh, reflective of the seed of the serpent than he is the seed of the woman. And so there's this, this letdown, right? There's this, this sense of, oh, it wasn't him, right? So we go on a little bit more into verse 25, and we see the hope comes up again, right? She says this in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore him a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So there she goes to that offspring again, that word that we see in our verse here. So there's again hope. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the offspring that God was talking about, that he promised in Genesis 3.15. But we see quickly that is not the case. Right, And so from Genesis 4 to Genesis 12, we have just this massive amount of names, right, of offspring. This person begat that person begat that person. And we don't see this hope, right? We don't see this being made right. We still see the effects of, of sin and the effects of that fall, okay? Until we get to, to Genesis 12, so we flip over to Genesis 12, 
And we see this come again. 12.1 Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him that dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see that there's this, this promise that comes. And we see that it's talking about offspring. Jumped to, to verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So we see that word again, offspring. Okay, we see this seed idea coming back, this thread that's woven through. So some time goes by. And we flip over to chapter 13, Genesis 13, starting in verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place that you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre. So again, we see this continued promise of offspring. Okay? But we understand that Abraham was childless. Okay? He had this promise, but it wasn't happening. Right? And so, so God comes to him again, and he makes him a promise, and he says, No, you will have an offspring. And he says, that's great that you're going to give me all this stuff. I have all these wonderful promises, but I don't have an offspring. I don't, my heir is, is a servant in my house. I don't have a son. God says, no, your son will be your heir. Okay, so we understand the story of, of Sarah and her attempt to fix it, right, with Hagar, how that ends in disaster. But God again comes and says, no, it's Isaac, right? So, so Abraham has a son. Finally, he has a son. Okay, and this comes down, and it comes all the way down, and we, we look at the story of Genesis, and it just keeps coming, keeps coming, and it keeps coming. Okay, and we trace that line all the way through that seed, and, and still there's that hope from Genesis 3.15 that someone is coming. Okay, and then we get um, all the way into... Um, to the time where they've, they've partially experienced this, right? And they're in the land as the nation of Israel after they've seen amazing things from God. And there's a king now, King David. And so let's, let's flip over to Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we get this in, in 2 Samuel, starting in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel up from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, 
from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for your offspring, a house, make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these things, and in accordance with all his vision, Nathan spoke to David. So we see here now, not just the, the promise of an offspring, but the promise of a king that would come, right? So we see that this has developed now, and we, not just have a, we don't just have a, a promise of an offspring, but we have a promise of a king, okay? So let's flip over to the New Testament now, and that thread of kings comes all the way down through the Old Testament, right? And we see that at times it's very precarious, and we don't know what's going to happen. Is the king, is the line of the kings going to be extinguished? Can we see God's preservation in this thread of seed, okay? Because he is faithful to his promise. And we come to the New Testament, and we see Galatians Galatians 3.16, and Paul writes to us saying this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So we see, finally, that the seed, the offspring, is Christ. And I think it's interesting in both of the genealogies that we have in the New Testament, right? In Matthew's genealogy, we see that seed line traced from Abraham and David, right? The two that we looked at before, okay? All those promises that came to Abraham and all those promises that came to David in the genealogy of Matthew, we see those promises fulfilled in Christ, right? As that, that seed comes down. And then on the other side, in the genealogy of Luke, in Luke 3.23, we see Luke chase that seed and that genealogy, and where does he end up? From Adam, right? So we see God fulfilling his promise, and we understand that that, that promise of an offspring way back in Genesis chapter 3, how he preserves that line, and he brings us the one, finally the one, right? And it doesn't have that, that letdown that Eve faced, right? Maybe this is the one? No, it's not. 
we see that failure with that line all the way up until Christ. Which leads us in then to our, our final thread, the thread of sacrifice. So back to Genesis 3.15, and what do we read? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so here we see sacrifice. Okay, there is no bruising, okay, without blood. And we see some, some, some translations will, will put in the word crush. He will crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so we have that hope. And that was the hope that Eve had, right? Of the seed, of the offspring that was going to come. It wasn't just that an offspring was going to come, but it was that the offspring was going to crush the head of the serpent, okay? And undo all of this badness that, that was done. So... We look back into that scene right before this in the garden after they fell. And that feeling that Adam and Eve felt of nakedness, of shame and guilt, what was their response? They sewed fig leaves to cover their nakedness. Okay? And when we see God come to them, after he confronts the serpent here with this curse, and after he turns to the woman and he turns to the man, what do we see God doing? We see him providing a sacrifice. Okay? So he takes an animal, let's go with a lamb, and he, okay, in a very symbolic way, kills the animal, transferring their guilt to that animal. And he provides for them a covering. Okay, so, so he's coming to them in grace and saying, look, your attempts to cover this nakedness and this shame that you feel, it's not going to fix it. Okay, so we get that, that thread of sacrifice starting to develop even there in the garden. Right? And we follow that thread all the way through. Okay, so remember Abraham the promise that came to him in the seed that we looked at. Let's look in Genesis 22. As we trace this line now through of sacrifice. So we see finally, when Abraham gets the promise of the offspring, right, of the, the own son that he would have, Isaac, God says, okay, I want you to sacrifice him, right? And so this crushing blow, after all this time, Abraham waiting for this promise, and now God saying, you need to sacrifice your son Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham? And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So now we see this theme of where is the lamb, right? And we have this promise from God in the words of Abraham, I myself will provide a lamb. And we trace that thread through, and we look at the Old Testament sacrifices, okay? And, and even before that, we see in the Passover of Exodus, right, when God is bringing his people out, we have this, this symbol of the Passover lamb, right? The one that would take the place, okay, for the, the, the family that would have its, its neck slit, and the blood would be drained, and it would be placed on the doorposts and the lintels. And when that destroying angel came and they saw the blood, it would pass over. And then all of the Old Testament sacrificial system that we see, all of the lambs that were sacrificed, right, we see that still all of that blood is not enough, okay? Because in Hebrews, we learn that the sacrifices never stop, right? They keep going and going and going because that nakedness that we have because of Adam and Eve and because of the sin that had come into the world is never fully dealt with. And so we see all the way down this problem, okay? And we have that words, the, the words of of Isaac ringing in our ears, where is the lamb? And then we get to the New Testament, the Gospel of John again, right? And we see the words of John the Baptist, behold the lamb. Okay, so that same seed that we trace down and we saw in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, now we see in the Gospel of John, he is also the lamb, here he comes. So we see, finally, in Jesus, right, our Passover lamb, the threat of sacrifice being dealt with. Okay, so finally, we have this covering now, okay, that we can stand with boldness, right? No longer in shame and guilt and nakedness, like Adam and Eve, hiding from God, but what do we see in Hebrews? We come with boldness before the throne because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed and it's done. Okay, but that's not the end because in Revelation, we see 
lamb used 28 times in the book alone. So let's flip to the end, okay? So this theme all the way through, right down to Revelation 21. And let's just get this quickly. I'm out of time here. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they are his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear, the tear of that suffering from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, I will dis and the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the last of the seven plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And it continues and it goes on and it goes on and it talks about the lamb. Okay, even right at the end. 22, let's jump there. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the lamb. And there is no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no light there. They will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see the final victory in the Lamb. We see all of these threads that are traced through from the very beginning from Genesis, fulfilled in the one, the Christ, the Lamb. And finally, we have that covering, and we have that hope, and we have that relief from the suffering as he wipes away the tear. So this is our hope these threads that are chased through, the thread of suffering, seed, and sacrifice. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you are so amazing, God. I thank you that we get to be a witness, and not just a witness, but a, a, a participant in your story, God. The story that is from Genesis to Revelation, the long story of redemption, God, and I thank you for the Lamb, God. I thank you that, 
that we can have a covering for our nakedness and our shame. God, I thank you that you are a faithful and a good God. And I pray that as we continue to meditate on these things and and think about them and be encouraged by them, God, that you will transform us into your image. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.